Alright, Are you just calibrating your eyebrows? My eyebrows are always calibrated. <laughs> Every morning I wake up and make sure they're still there. That's the first thing. I do. Yeah, yeah. If I if my eyebrows accidentally get shaved off, I lose all of my expression. <laughs> like one day, I asked my attendant to shave my eyebrows, like to trim them down, uh-huh. and she went a bit overzealous, and I didn't know how to react literally to anyone for the rest of the day yeah i like i was acting surprised and people like are you okay yeah it's like the equivalent when people get botox and they can't have an expression anymore yeah (laughs) someone shaves your eyebrows all of a sudden you look like joan rivers (laughs) (laughs) If, if i didn't have i always want you know like that homer simpson like the picture of his brain where it's like like outlines the parts of his brain that are devoted to which things. Mm-hmm. I always wonder like what my brain would look like if I could do that. Like how much of it is my right hand because I do all my driving with that hand. Mm-hmm. Then how much of it is like my mustache that I use to scratch my nose. Yeah. And then like 80% of it is just eyebrows. How did you scratch your nose before puberty? I think I just never had an itchy nose till I was like 12. <laughs> I think the reason I grew a beard so early in life was because I always had an itchy nose. And right. my body's like, we'll have to figure something out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You probably get the most utility out of your beard than like anyone. Even like the people who own their own brewery in uh, Portlandia. Yeah. <laughs> it keeps me warm and keeps my nose from being too itchy. Right. The thing is, I, I think I kind of, now it's like an un conscious tick that I do where I'll do that and yeah I'll do it in front of people that I'm like trying to impress or trying to like I'll do it in like a job interview or something. You'll scratch your nose in a job interview? Yeah, not realizing that it's like a bizarre thing to look at. It's not that bizarre. It but you're so used to it. Well it's still though the first it- time you saw me do it did you even know what I was doing? Or were you just like, oh, he's spastic? No, it's not a tick. Like, it's not a twitch or like a... It looks kind of, It's a little tickish. No, it's just like people, people, you know, people scrunch their nose. You know, in the spectrum of things you can do to your face as a nervous tick, it's relatively minor. Like, at least you're not picking your nose or picking your eye snot or like... That's or like true. pulling a nose hair or like you, you don't, you didn't, you're not putting a finger in the mouth or something weird. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> or in your ear. Like there's so many weirder things you could do. Do you have a, do you have a tick? Of course I have a tick. You've pointed it out to me a number of times when I'm uncertain of an idea that I'm asserting, I'll clear my throat beforehand. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But do you have like a visual tick? Um, Sometimes I'll shiver if I'm stressed out and suddenly I'm relieved. Hmm. Do you ever do that in like a work meeting? Seldomly. What I'll do, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, if I'm excessively stressed and I'm not in my power chair, there's about a 30% chance that I will break my foot pedal on my right side. Because of your leg just spazzing? Yeah, like basically like just putting perpetual pressure on my foot pedal like i think in spite of a certain amount of pandemic related inactivity general spasticity has maintained my muscle definition 
like over time. And that's true of other people with cerebral palsy that I know that don't like work out in a traditional sense, but still have quite a bit of definition because of spasticity. I really want to see the disabled Avengers, like one guy who just has like super spasms. Yeah. <laughs> and can just like lift a truck if he's nervous. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then like I can like twitch my face really quickly to I don't I don't know how that would be used as a superpower. I'm just thinking of like a strongman competition with a bunch of wheelies who are who have cerebral palsy of the spastic nature. Yeah. And they don't have a history of lifting weights. But what they do do before, like the play a loud noise. Yeah, before the before the like the key deadlift of the event, they just like play a an air horn. It's like and then all of a sudden they deadlift five hundred pounds out of shock. (laughs) Yeah, everyone shows up on a paratransport. Yeah, you have to like schedule your crimes. Oh man, the whole event would take three months just to get people to the event. Yeah. Yeah, that would that would be awful. We're getting there's gonna be a burglary tomorrow afternoon. Can you get a ride? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Then you show up. The idea of like like a a burglary in progress, the van the the bus pulls up and they're like just beating each other up, some some guys like stealing a grandma's purse. And then you just have the bus driver and you cut, like there's all this chaos. And then you cut to a ramp just going, and you're like sitting on it, just slowly lowering to the ground. You know how the Ottawa LRC train, I think that's what it's called, right? LRT. Yeah, the LRT train is in the nightly news in Ottawa on a on a daily basis. Yeah, because they forgot like that Ottawa gets cold and that trains need round wheels. <laughs> there's just all kinds of evidence that it was like a cargo cult kind of project well i think it's also like the lowest bidder yeah oh, that's how they that, do it. that that too someone's like i'll get the price of dollarama sold the wheels are jolly ranchers sorry continue i was just gonna say like could you imagine how much news co- coverage the lrt or sorry how much news coverage would occur if able-bodied people used paratranspo Oh, I know. <laughs> Think about how quickly the world would change if any... It, but the crazy thing is, there's it's only like 15% of people have a disability, which, which equates to like a billion people. Like, it's the biggest minority. Mm-hmm. But I guess within that, there's all sorts of disabilities, so not everyone is like using a wheelchair. But imagine how quickly the world would change the amount of stuff disabled people wait through or just kind of persevere through mm-hmm. because of their learned helplessness and learned complacency. Like, I can't imagine a week would go by and paratransport wouldn't be sorted. Like, an, or there wouldn't be more accessible taxis. There wouldn't be like, there'd be an accessible Uber in the city. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the the LRT has been a gong show. One of the problems was actually that the wheels weren't round. Excuse me? (laughs) The wheels were becoming ovular. Did they reinvent the wheel? (laughs) They tried. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I I wonder what would happen if the LRT team built a wheelchair. Yeah, it would be a sled. (laughs) 
If you could design your a perfect chair, what would it be? Oh God, I don't know how to answer that question. Like you're still disabled. Uh-huh. You still have your exact same function, but you get to des- design a feature-rich wheelchair. I think people have posed this question to me before, and I sort of lack imagination on the subject. So yours would just be like another set of wheels? Like I, No, I think like it would be more uniquely fitted to my body. Uh, right. It would have the option... Of uh, like more shock, sorry, more shock absorption. Yeah. Uh, less less weight, so it could be folded and transportable in any vehicle. Um, ideally, it would have some kind of standing position in case I wanted to weight bear or like. There you know, are standing wheelchairs now. Yeah. So I would love one of those. Are they? I think you could just get it. Like what you're asking for is still very much within reach. Whenever people ask me questions like this, I'm like, I want it to hover and then I want to push a button and it's a boat. Like my <laughs> my imagination is too ridiculous. Well, like I don't know. You seem to have all your like functional needs and those that are underserviced, like kind of you know, you're constantly aware of them at all times. The thing I honestly would want it to do is to be heated. Like so that I could functionally go out without thinking about it in the winter. Yeah. Like a heated joystick, the same way they have heated steering wheels or handlebars on a snowmobile. Like a heated joystick, some kind of like windshield protection so that I was enclosed from the elements. Mm -hmm. So that I could literally just turn on the heater, go outside, push a button, and like a convertible, the top flops down, and I just drive through the winter. Would you have it? Scratch your nose as well, or no? I'd keep the mustache. You'd keep the mustache, yeah. yeah. Have you ever accidentally shaved too close and then had an itchy nose for like three days? When you shave too close, it actually becomes better as a scratcher because it becomes more bristly. Really? What if they moisturize your upper lip? Yeah. So every day I put beard oil on my beard <laughs> to try to soften it, and if I do too good at that, then it doesn't scratch my nose anymore beard so I have to maintain oil. a balance between a soft beard and an itchable face <laughs> you've probably found that perfect balance because i would imagine it's a crisis if your face is itchy and there's nothing you can do about it i find things to do I, I'll, I'll just like like a bear i will run into something <laughs> like sometimes i get i get these weird like sun rashes sometimes mm-hmm. in the summer and my knees get itchy and I'll just go around the house like rubbing my leg on the couch or like trying to trick my cat into scratching me. Um trying to trick your cat into scratching. <laughs> <laughs> well Jack does that though. Like is that why he sort of uh habitually jumps on your headrest and strolls around your face? Yeah, we have a code word. Because he always puts his butt in your face, and I figured that was non-consensual, but you're saying it... You... It's definitely non-consensual. <laughs> One time I got pink eye. <laughs> no! Yeah. Don't say that. That's disgusting. I got like I got a sty. It wasn't pink eye. It was a sty. And I had a sty, and I remember someone was like, you probably got that from when Jack always puts his butt in your face. I thought, I was wondering if we were going to get through an episode without mentioning a butthole. Was that the goal? 
You're on the wrong podcast. <laughs> I was just wondering if we could do it. Like, I'm obviously not going to. If you said at the beginning, <laughs> I want to not talk about buttholes, I'm sure we could do it. Here's an interesting question. Uh, in the design of a wheelchair, would you ever want to factor in like uh, the opinions or preferences of like uh, attendants that you trust? A little bit. Like on my new chair that I actually just got approved for. So it's uh-huh. been ordered. Yeah. I think about like, like right now it, my wheelchair is super highly technical and really works for me. But as a result, it's also kind of tricky to do things like tilt back. Like it's like a specific sequence of joystick movements to get it into tilt mode and then tilt it back. And the attendants like to tilt the chair back when they're transferring me into it. And so my new chair will have like a dedicated tilt button just for them. And you're comfortable accommodating them that way? Yeah, I I like, I don't know. I have this thing in me that needs, it's like a obsessive need to have everyone, myself included and first and foremost, but also everyone around me to like have their needs sorted. Like if someone comes over, and they're like, hey, do you have cranberry juice? And I'm like, no, I don't drink cranberry juice. The next day, I will go out and buy cranberry juice. Really? Because I feel insecure and in- insufficient because I like cranberry juice. Are you serious? Yeah. So when I notice that an attendant has a hard time tilting my chair, I immediately, like I make a mental note that my next chair will be easier to tilt. That's like uh, very, very considerate. Maybe, but it's also, it, it goes too far for sure. Like I'll buy things, like I don't drink cranberry juice. Yeah. And then it's just going to be in the fridge until someone never asks for it again. I noticed when I visited you on a number of occasions that you're like, you're not a heavy drinker or user of extracurricular drugs of a legal nature. Sure. And yet you always have, you know, a supply for a a variety of people. You do have a bar, yeah. Yeah. There's like plural shelves devoted to the liqueurs and um, boozes that you have. Because it's the exact same thing. Like when someone's over and they're like, you want to have a drink, I don't want to limit their choices. And I think it's because in my mind, I'm like, if they ask for something and I don't have it, they won't be my friend. You know what? I guess like I don't really have that I don't have that in me of needing to be a good host. I, I, and I That sounds terrible. No, but it's not. It, like, I honestly think what I do is unhealthy because it's like, it goes too far and I lose myself in it all the time. Yeah. So I don't think it's like a necessarily an enviable place to be. It's important to me that my friendships remain reciprocal. So if I'm indebted to friends or there's something I know I can do for them to make the night better, like I'll, I'll get pizza for the gang or like supply booze, even though I don't drink anymore or something like that on occasion, I'll do that. But I, uh, it's not something that I chronically feel that I need to do. What I do feel like I need to do is be entertaining in a conversational or social context when I am with friends and if I'm not like making jokes or like feeding into the momentum of the evening, I do feel guilty that way. Yeah. Same. If like I'll often catch myself 
listening instead of talking and okay. then being like, oh, I need to say something here because I they're going to think I'm not interested in this. And then I they won't like want me to come back. And do you feel these sorts of things even with people that you have a long history with, like a, cl- a close friendship? Well, it depends. Like if I have a very close friendship, then I don't, like I never feel that gap because it just comes naturally. Uh-huh. But yeah, sometimes I'll still feel like, especially in larger settings, I'm usually the one to just chill and let people talk, especially when it's loud because me talking usually just turns into like the whole room trying to quiet down to hear me. And I never feel like what I have to say is important enough oh, for that. On. It's usually like a dumb joke or whatever. Oh, come on. But then I get self-conscious that they probably think I don't want to be there, which is not the right. How do you reconcile all this insecurity with the fact that there's a 50% likelihood that you're going to make your close friends pee their pants with a hilarious joke? Like that- I, I, I appreciate that. I don't know. I mean, like, I think I honestly, it's partially like childhood stuff that I've already brought up probably on here. But then there's also disability stuff, like knowing that I'm quiet. And sometimes I feel like when I'm in a group of people that are unfamiliar with me and they try to engage me and then I talk, like I'll respond Uh and they have a hard time hearing me. I can tell that they're uncomfortable with like my response to the point sometimes they'll be like, oh yeah, yeah. But they don't really know what I said at all because, oh yeah, yeah, it does not make sense to the, as a response to what I said. Right. It's just a social courtesy. Right. And then I feel silly for like the whole situation and somehow feel responsible. I always feel a bit of that kind of discomfort when I'm making a presentation in a work environment and there are people in the meeting that have never worked with me before. So they might have the potential to interact with me with kid gloves or to, or to not ask like critical or invasive questions about a particular design or whatever it may be. And I just breaking the ice with new people is really tough. What are your strategies? Cause mine are always, I'll be the one to take the first punch at myself just so they know that like, it's okay. You don't have to wear the kid's gloves around me. But then sometimes that sets a weird precedent. Like I'm not actually insecure about that thing I made a joke about. I'm just doing it because it's easy and I want you to feel like you can treat me like a peer. Yeah. So I, where I can, I try to conduct those kinds of meetings with coworkers that I'm close to. And then they can lead by example in how they treat me and interact with me in a, in a meeting or group setting. Yeah. Because I feel like that does more than I can do for myself, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Well, because people lead by example and the example of how to treat me comes from other able-bodied people. All right. Do you think your work would be better if you were working with more disabled people? That is a really good question. Uh, it would be held to a more authentic degree of scrutiny. Yeah. And, I, and I wouldn't be, there would be absolutely no kid gloves. In fact, there would be extra criteria upon which to be evaluated. Just thinking about how, just thinking about the social dynamics at Carlton. It's so hard to know where to attribute those things. Like, are the kid gloves there because 
of your disability or are they there because they just want everything to go smoothly without uh, turbulence, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, there's always a degree of pleasantry in new social environments and overcoming those pleasantries, which I find incredibly painful, like more more painful than insensitivity, to be honest. Because insensitivity is authentic. I mean, it's at least uh, unfiltered. Yeah. And the, the kid, kid gloves is just like an overly sanitized version. I don't know. I think you you and I are the same in that sense where we want people to just be real with us. Yeah. And so there are those interactions where people are, are using the kid gloves, even if it's just because they're being polite and it has nothing to do with prejudice or disability related. It still feels like they... You, you still want to see their authentic side. Whereas when someone says something truly despicable and insensitive to you, at least you know that they're not hiding something. For sure. I think it's such an authenticity, right? Uh, maybe, I, I like, we shouldn't crave that people show us the other... We shouldn't crave this, really, but it's... Well, you shouldn't crave being, like, dehumanized or people being insensitive to you, but I think you should crave people being authentic. Mm-hmm. Or unguarded or something. But I think part of me does actually kind of crave uh, friends and influences who have the capacity for cruelty in some sense. And I know they've probably not given enough context in that. No, I think I know what you mean. Like when someone can roast you, you feel like they're pure. Yeah. That's especially important with disability. And when when it's an able-bodied person interacting with you, because not many people are willing to cross that threshold of roasting the disabled person because you're quote-unquote punching down. And when they realize that they can do that, then either they are punching down, which is obviously maybe a bad thing, but if it doesn't feel like they're punching down, then it just feels like they see you as an equal. Yeah. So I guess what we're saying is like condescension is worse than outright cruelty. Or like insensitivity. Yeah, I think so. Condescension feels fake and fake people. I don't want to jump the gun, but fakeness was kind of the crux of what I disliked about the movie we watched today. Oh, me too. Anyway, I don't want to get there. I have an interesting tangent about, you know how much I love telling stories about where I live because of how great and client-centered and new age and progressive it is here all sarcasm all very much things i feel in my heart every morning i wake up and i go how is this place going to appreciate me today can i ask you a question yeah and i'm starting to sound like larry david's hey can i ask you can i ask you a question uh, are you wearing a beanie today because somebody fucked up your hair no i actually had to go outside and it's cold out Okay, okay, because I wondered if the beanie was in some way part of your tangent, which I would have no. found out if I just heard you, like, let you talk about it. But I, I'm curious about the beanie because I've never seen you wear a toque. Oh, I wear beanies pretty consistently, especially when I'm going outside. Not so much when you and I talk because it's typically during the work week and I don't wear them during work. Mm, okay, okay. But I had to go out for an appointment today. I had, so I threw it on. 
One of my favorite things to do is to note the state of your hair. Like when we go on webcam. Oh, after I take this off, it's going to be a mess. Yeah. It's just because I have a minor obsession with like hairstyle and disability. Yeah. When I get my hair cut, my barber, he kind of knows now. I don't know if barber is an insensitive word for him. Hairstylist. But why, why, why? To me, barber is just like a guy who just uses clippers. As soon as you're like putting like wax in your hair, you're not a barber anymore. I don't know. I feel like there's a distinction. I'm going to outrage all of our barber listeners. Yeah, really. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know. To me, barber is like that spinning pole on the outside, you know? What? <laughs> okay. <laughs> what do barbers and strippers have to do with each other? They both try to get you closer to the skin. <laughs> <laughs> that was a respectable response. Thanks. Yeah, PG-13, but, you know, good stuff. What was I saying? Oh, shit. You were you were talking about a, a recent encounter with a hairdresser, weren't you? Oh, yes. Whenever I go to the hairdressers, he has to cut my hair around my headrest. Like, someone holds my head, they cut my hair. I tip them both. My haircuts are expensive because I'm wow. tipping two people. Wait. The, the hairdresser and the head holder. The head holder is like another hairdresser? Uh, it's either another hairdresser or like a secretary or like one of the people that kind of just manages the place and sweeps and stuff. <laughs> it, it's some guy named Bob who loiters around Orange Julius all day. We just go to the food court and we're like, <laughs> who here wants to make a quick 10 bucks? <laughs> <laughs> you just have to hold my head. And they're like, excuse me? No, no, not that head. You know, I want to take a few minutes, I promise. <laughs> yeah, so someone holds my head. I get the haircut. Then he puts the headrest back on. Then he kind of trims around. Like, my hairstyle looks a lot different with and without my headrest. Because it's actually shaped so that the headrest doesn't interfere with my hairstyle. That is bizarre. Yeah. Like, I hope you don't feel alienated by me using that word, but it's just a very... No, it is bizarre. Yeah, it's like your story about getting your your fucking ID photo taken at Staples. (laughs) Like, holy shit. I mean, what you should do is schedule your haircut around your second or third date with the woman. And if she holds your head properly during your haircut, then you know she's a keeper. (laughs) <laughs> I'll just like change my Tinder bio to looking for a head holder for this month's appointment. <laughs> P.S. You have, must use both hands. <laughs> <laughs> that was a dick joke. Some some joke about which head they're holding. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the place I live, you know some of this already from having lived here in the past. Uh-huh. They have a cell phone. The way it works is when you need help. I wouldn't call it a cell phone. Right. So the the way it works is... Isn't it like a paper cup with a string attached? Yeah, everyone has a string. Yeah. And when you need help, you just start shouting and hope the string vibrates. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Everyone gets it caught in their spokes and they're trapped in their apartment all day yelling for care. Right. Yeah. So they have a phone number that Uh you can call when you need help. Otherwise, they'll call when you're scheduled. But sometimes I have to pee and I have to call for help. Uh-huh. So I call 
And sometimes they answer on this flip phone from, you know, the early aughts. And it's a phone that I don't even think you could buy anymore. It's a phone that some of the people who work here probably don't even understand. Like some of the technology that they use now. It'd be like, can you just call him back on the rotary? Realistically, that phone could be older than new hires at your building. Yeah. So often, because it's ancient and not, you know, a good phone, I will call and it won't be working. So it will go to voicemail. Yeah. And I'll have to leave a voicemail being like, please get a new phone from this century. (laughs) And also I have to pee. And what is the reason they won't get a new phone? Because it's not in the budget? I don't know what the reason is, but this weekend I had gone out in the cold. I went to a hockey game, which was also cold because you're in a rink. And so by the time I got home, I was an ice cube. And as we discussed, when my hands get too cold, I literally can't drive my chair. I'm driving down the ramp of the bus, almost went off the side of the ramp. That's the scariest feeling in the world, by the way. It was terrifying. Even when those ramps are relatively close to the ground, like when your power chair is uneven and you feel like it's now spinning out of your control, like it's honestly, it honestly feels like you're about to get into a slow motion uh, collision with the transport truck. Yeah. And it always feels slow motion because you're in direct control of it, but you're also kind of not at the same time. Yeah. And it's a big lumbering cube of death. Yeah. Like, I think I've been afraid of my power chair killing me more than anything else in life. (laughs) (laughs) It's terrifying. I almost drove off the side of the ramp and I recovered. But as part of my recovery, my head fell off the headrest. When you tell me that your head falls off your headrest, I, this might be insensitive, but I... I, At least it's authentic. I, (laughs) I immediately, like, picture you your neck like ragdolling and then you being in an immense amount of pain and like i i just can't imagine not being able to recenter your neck and just sit comfortably like you have to hold the most awkwardly uncomfortable neck position in the world until somebody realizes that you need help and that to me just is is terrifying well so part of it is the way my head falls it always falls to the right And then I'm basically leaning on my own shoulder. But my jaw is, my chin is like pushed up. So my jaw is clenched tight together. So I can barely speak. But also the weight of my head is now on my shoulder, which makes it even more difficult to control my chair because that's my driving arm. So does it look like you're studying your left nipple or something? Like what is, what does it look like? Yeah, it looks like I'm making sure I put deodorant on both sides. (laughs) I know. I'm sorry. I'm making light of it. I just, it's, it's a really dire situation. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, the only way I can get through it while it's happening is to laugh at how ridiculous the whole situation is. Can you breathe through your nose when your head's that way? I can still breathe, but like speaking is pretty tough. Yeah. And does it like dawn on people that you need help or do they just. No, they just think that that's my life. And they're so like, oh, he's just, <laughs> he just likes the way his ribs look. Imagine like somebody had a catastrophic fall on the ground 
and bystanders just looked at them and thought like, Ugh. oh, that's just them doing them. That's how he looks, I guess. <laughs> or people like, don't look, it's rude. Yeah, it's rude. So, so dumb. I managed to get inside. I get to the lobby of my building. Can we go back for a second? Did yeah. your head fall off your headrest while you were in eye shot of your paratransport driver? Yeah, and I probably should have asked her or tried to. But I was like, that's okay. I'll just get inside where it's warmer and then call an attendant. Because I'm going to need help from an attendant anyway to get up with the elevator because my hands are too cold to get the elevator buttons. Do you have peripheral vision that isn't just nipple? I can see hair. <laughs> so I get inside, I'm in the lobby, and then I muster the ability to speak to my phone and use voice commands to call the attendants. Yeah. It calls the attendants and it goes to voicemail. Of course it does. And now I'm in a position where I can't even hang up because my hand is in a a place where I can't move it to hang up the phone. I'm now leaving a message. So I left a message that's basically just me breathing for two minutes and muttering about how it's outrageous that they're still using a flip phone. This is not an acceptable solution. And I'm like pretty angry at this point. Eventually, the phone is like, this message has gone on for too long. Goodbye, and hangs up, which is perfect. Because now I have the ability to call again. So this time, I call the office phone number. The, the office is like where they they hang out when they're not on a call. Yeah. I call the number hoping that somebody's there. Because if nobody's there, in my head, I'm like, I don't even know if this one goes to voicemail or if it just rings indefinitely, and then I'm really stuck here. Yeah. So I call that number as like a desperate last-ditch effort. Somebody answers, and I'm like, hey, I'm in the lobby, I need help downstairs. And I go, okay, I'll be there in five minutes. So I'm down there waiting. Eventually she comes down a few minutes later, and she puts my head back up on the headrest, puts my hand back on the joystick, like everything I need to basically move again. Yeah. Helps me with the elevator button. Get I get inside as soon as I leave. Like I exit the elevator. She's still in the elevator. I turn the corner to the hall to my apartment. And I just like for half a second, like a single tear goes down my face. And I'm just like, I hate this so much. Like the whole experience ruined me. It made me feel like all sorts of existential thoughts. I was in rough shape, but I like canned it, whatever, moving on. How long did the whole experience last? 15 minutes. Wow. 15 minutes to ruin your week, your month. Enough to ruin the evening for sure. Yeah. But like I I, I made a conscious effort to not, I didn't want to spiral. So like I are just enough to be like, Ah, and then, okay, I'm fine. Is it possible they keep the rotary phone um, in order to buffer traffic? If the attendants oh. decide that they don't want to take too many calls, they just blame it on the phone? That's such a cynical, I hope you're wrong. Well, like, what other excuse is there? It's not expensive to get a new one. It has to be within their annual budget to have fucking phones. I remember at the last place I lived, they hired me to come up with a new phone system because their contract was expiring 
and they needed a new phone system. And they basically paid me to, to, to research a few different options, pick one, and then set up the plan. And that one was awesome. Like they had, well, you remember, you lived at Carlton, yeah. where they had that whole thing where you call one number and if it didn't work, it bounced to the next phone. Right, and it as bounced it should. four phones. Mm-hmm. So there are four phones in service. And basically, if one phone doesn't pick up, it automatically starts ringing the next phone until yeah. one of the four phones pick up. So pretty much, you're always going to get in touch with a person. Yeah, your likelihood drastically increases of never never being out of touch. But the way it works here is if you don't get the first phone, then you basically leave a message, hope they check it, or you call the office, hope they get that. Or even if you do answer or someone does answer, let's say they're on a call and they're busy, they don't have a way of easily reaching another attendant besides like, okay, it's 1230. That means so-and-so is probably still with so-and-so. So maybe try calling their phone to see if I can reach the attendant that's in their apartment. And then you basically play tag wasting everyone's time because yeah they don't want to spend a hundred dollars a year on a new phone so all this happens i'm pretty angry i remember talking to you that evening you did yeah and i was like probably a little bit not myself because i had just gone through this and was like trying to keep myself together but also frustrated that this was like my reality at the time yeah you were very sheepish and we were making all kinds of really impressive plays in our super amazing, uh, very mature, uh, very high, highly skilled video game that we play. Right, and yeah. in, in spite of all that success, you weren't really reacting the way you normally do. Yeah. So I was, uh, I was worried about you. Yeah. So I knew I needed to do something and not just accept it until it rolled over until the next day. So I sent an email to the management team here about it saying, you know, this is an unacceptable solution. Like we should have a better phone. You're leaving people in compromised vulnerable states when they need urgent help. And that's the whole point of the phone is to be able to reach someone when you need help quickly. Yeah. The one thing in this world that we don't have a scarcity of is fucking phones. Yeah. And flip phones is one thing we do have a scarcity of. So <laughs> yeah. stop using flip phones. They, re- they email me back. Their solution is that they've asked the staff to put an elastic band around the battery of the phone to hold the battery on the phone. Are they Mr. Bean? Like, what the fuck is wrong with people? This is their solution. That's- and then I was like, that doesn't work. What if it's still not working? They're like, okay, here's a number that you can call if it doesn't work for a pager. So their solution is try to call if you have to pee or your head falls off your joystick and you need urgent help and it goes to voicemail, leave a message, then call a pager. Do you even know what a pager is? Do people even know what pagers are? Pagers were used by people on Wall Street in 1982 to feel contemporary and on top of things. Yeah. They were like messing old things back and forth. So now when I encounter this issue again, their solution is to call a pager, leave a number on the pager for the staff to call me back. 
Then I have to wait for the staff to figure out how to use a pager, see my number on the pager, then call me back. And this whole time I'm wondering, is someone around? Did someone get this? Am I going to get help? Am I going to die like this? Is this how it ends? Oh my God. It's like, it seems like they're playing a prank on you. Imagine if your car wasn't working and you take it to a mechanic and the mechanic's like, okay, well, if your car stops working again, here's a horse. Exactly. Yeah. And if the horse doesn't work, here's a mule. And if a mule doesn't work, here's some shoes. Yeah. Use your legs, dummy. (laughs) What are you, disabled? Yeah. So again, they're just being super deferential. And I even said in my email, I explained that I had been hired in the past to set up a phone system for a similar work environment with similar needs, and that I'd be happy to discuss options with them if they were running out of solutions. But they were like, no, no, we're good. We've got elastic bands. What the fuck, Tony? Yeah, it was so infuriated. Like they literally have a shoestring budget? What the fuck is going on? They literally have an elastic band budget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm still so rattled. And I sent an email again today being like, the elastic band solution is a non-solution. And the pager also doesn't make sense because if I'm in a vulnerable state like I was, I'm not even able to dial a number Uh, to like leave my because a pager isn't just you call a number and you leave a message you often have to like press a bunch of keys to leave a callback number and stuff right yeah a bunch of special characters yeah and they're all prompted so you have to be timely with it as well yeah it's not an accessible solution (laughs) they just made it worse like it feels like they are just fucking with you yeah like like the the lady who wrote the response and said try using a pager was probably cackling like a witch the whole time. <laughs> if that doesn't work, we've sent you some string and cups. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I'm twiddling my evil mustache while I'm saying this. <laughs> sent using stone. <laughs> yeah, they respond to you with literal stone tablets. Yeah. <laughs> that they put in front of your front door of your apartment. Yeah. So that's uh that's anyway, I wanted to get that out there. In in lighter news, I had a doctor's appointment today and the doctor was mad that he had to leave. I was like, I have to go, my bus is now. And she's like, next time book more time, you know how much I like to talk. I'm like, I have to go to work. Was she hitting on you? I don't think so. I think she was <laughs> just super polite, but like was also kind of annoyed that I was like just trying to make it very transactional. she's like how are you doing what's new is that a new sweater and i'm like am i healthy or not (laughs) you're like well she did compliment my penis but i mean it was part of the exam so (laughs) it was a breathing test she unfortunately had to make me unzip (laughs) sorry i always do this i don't think it's me talking about buttholes as much as you talking about penises (laughs) a little here and there you know (laughs) anything you have to report. Let's see what's going on in my life lately. Oh, I, I don't know. Just my life is mostly work. I had a funny conversation with my dad today. Really? Yep. Okay, you play your dad, I'll play you. Okay, so I'll set the scene. 
Um, so I've been trying to figure out how to stay limber and keep moving in spite of the fact that my my walker causes me a lot of upper body pain of late. Uh, and the, the staircase is fine, but I have to limit my exposure to it because, again, I can overdo it fairly easily. So I started uh, like doing laps around the house in my manual chair for 20 minutes. Okay. Which is hilarious because my mom's like sitting around watching reruns of Frasier and I'm like pacing around the house. But as I finished my little regiment of loops, I uh, kind of stopped and did some, some stretches and I complained to my dad that uh, that my shoulders were hurting. And he said to me, I'll tell you. Okay. Dad, my, my shoulders are kind of sore. I feel like I, I don't know what it is. I, I keep... I can't really do the bike, but it's it's getting bad. Well, that's because you don't use them. What do you mean? I, I, I've just been doing laps around the house while mom watches Frasier. Well, that's true, but you're just sitting all day and that takes its toll. You got to use them or you lose them. Well, I, I use the, the staircase that you made for me sometimes. Yeah, well, once or, tw- once or twice a week isn't enough. You got to keep going. Got to stick with it. Yeah, well, if I do it every day, then it hurts, and then I, I'm in a workshop. It's not really helpful. Well, you got to book an appointment with your masseuse and ask them what's wrong. Yeah, but COVID, Dad. Well, COVID restrictions are lifting. You should be booking your appointments. I got to go. <laughs> yeah, except way less polite. Really? You shouted at him? I got really frustrated, yeah, because that's about the worst thing you can say. I was like, I, I was literally like, really? I don't use the most developed part of my body. Oh. I said, I, I said the pain is from overuse, not underuse. And of course, and to his credit, like, you know, uh, 25 minutes later, he did apologize. Did he? Oh, sorry, Joe. I guess that was a bit, bit much of me. I, I wasn't really, uh, wasn't really fair to say that. Say that. Pretty much. Yeah. But it was an apology nonetheless. So I'm not condemning my dad or anything. I'm just saying that like like that mentality is pervasive. It's 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 it it stays with you your whole life. What do you think he thinks you should be doing? Constantly stretching, constantly moving, like going to physio four or five times a week. Do you think he judges you for the amount of time you spend like playing video games or something? He what if I didn't have a job? But even still, you do have a job and it still seems like he's holding you to a higher standard than you feel is fair. But that also is is what underlies whatever strong motivation I have toward physical autonomy. That's fair. But it's negative reinforcement again. Right. Because there, there's ways you can approach. Like when someone comes to you and says you're in pain, the last thing you should do is blame them for their pain. That's like, that's just not a... If you came to me and said, my head fell off my headrest, I wouldn't say, well... That's because you're you need to get a different headrest, or you're going to need stronger neck muscles, there, Tony. Yeah, that's because you don't use your neck, Tony. Maybe if you did some more neck exercises, your head would stay where it's supposed to. <laughs> do, do you have that voice in, of your dad kind of running on loop when you're almost judging yourself, or when you're feeling shame about something? Like, do you ever use your dad's? Do you ever use your dad's voice in your inner monologue to motivate yourself? Mm. Like, are you ever like, I suppose we get outside today, Joe. It's been a nice day, and I've just sat here watching Sopranos all day. I definitely know what my dad's going to say in most conversations before I enter them. 
especially if I'm asking for help. But do you ever preemptively use it as like almost motivation? No. Okay. It's just that it like I don't have anyone else to go to to talk about these things besides you. And sometimes it feels unfair for me to come to you and say that my muscles hurt. That's bullshit. I don't want to hear that from you. I, I don't want to I'm hear sorry. that you think it's unfair. Like somehow your problems aren't as important as mine. That honestly infuriates me. I know logically that that's not true, but sometimes I do feel like there is a relativism there. No, there isn't, though, because my problems are insignificant compared to someone in a different situation to me and your problems. Like, your problems are just as valid. That's outrageous. Okay, well, I will. If you ever, yeah, you should never filter. If you ever feel like you have something to complain about, definitely come to me. If anything, I should be able to empathize better because I go through it also. So, like, it shouldn't be, oh, I shouldn't tell Anthony about this because he probably lost his head on the ramp today. It should be, oh, I should tell Anthony about this because since he's lost his head on the ramp before, he understands what it feels like to be limited by your own body or something. Yeah, I guess it's not so much that I don't want to talk about these things with you, but it's more that I don't want to monopolize the discussion with my problems and I can get super inside my head about these particular kinds of things. So it's, but I also know you well enough now to know when I feel like we've exhausted a topic. Right. And to just be like, all right, well, hopefully it works out and then we move on. Yeah. Fair enough. Like I get, I get that, but I'm honestly a little offended that you wouldn't want it's, it's like I just as much as I value people being honest and unfiltered this is like a prime example of that. right yeah well i do try to raise this type of stuff wherever i can on the podcast in a constructive way hopefully 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 yeah. hopefully 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 well it's only constructive if you feel it's constructive mm-hmm. i feel like everyone has those types of dynamics with their parents though where there is certain freezing or interactions that cause like disproportionately emotional backlash yeah so anyone who hears this can relate to that probably oh yeah whether it's disability or some other expectation that your guardian has of you that you ostensibly haven't fulfilled no don't get me wrong i've been in my fair share of arguments with my parents i'm more talking about you saying that you feel like you can't talk to me about it because your problems pale compared to mine i don't like that I get it. Cause then that, that also limits, like I'm putting a, an unnecessary limit on the t- kinds of things that you and I can talk about. And then also, well, you're also projecting a lot about my problems that you feel about my problems. Yeah. Assumptions. Like, Oh, I would never be able to handle my head falling off the headrest is kind of the same thing as someone in a restaurant going, Oh, I could never be disabled if I saw myself like that. You know what I mean? Like there's a there's an element of you projecting that that my problems are bigger than I think they are. Okay. Yeah, right? I see that. Yeah. It also helps me give perspective. Because if I I don't know, there's something comforting in knowing that even if our problems are different, there's like a common theme of 
you know, just disability. And there's something really comforting in sharing in the pain of disability. Yeah, or the general experience. Yeah. Was there anything comforting about the movie we watched for this week's episode? Oh, this movie was really disappointing. Oh, man. So, again, shout out to uh, a listener, Four Moons Counseling, for recommending this one as well. Recommended to us as potentially my version of special, as in a movie that might elicit similar disgruntled opinions as you got out of watching special. Mm -hmm. And very insightful, very astute observation, because I resented a lot of this movie. Maybe not for the same reasons you resented special, but there was a lot of um, self-reflection that I wasn't happy with or at least prepared for that the movie forced you to undergo? Yeah. Maybe you should preface the movie a bit first. So the film is about a 34-year-old man with spinal muscular atrophy, the same disability as my fellow podcast host. What's that? It's a story about Amy going on a road trip with his close friends to confront the doctor that gave him a dire prognosis in the 1970s. Saying he would live to be six. Yeah. So Amy wants to leave his family home and journey with his friends across the United States in an RV. You said he was in Israel? At the start of the documentary, he lives in Israel. Yeah. And so he has to break it to his parents, even though he's supposedly very fragile and shouldn't be traveling. He only weighs 39 pounds. The movie is called, by the way, 39 Pounds of Love. Which also wasn't like an ironic title. It wasn't like he's a spiteful little bastard, so they call him a bundle of love. They actually mean that he evokes, you know, sentimental heart. Yeah, like I can't even really. It's just very cheesy. It's a Hallmark documentary about a disabled man. It feels like the documentary, because his life on its own, objectively, is somewhat interesting. Mm-hmm. 39 pounds is incredibly light. No kidding. And I, I think that my, at my most unhealthy, I was like 60 something. But 39, I can't even imagine. I mean, his limbs look like a bundle of pretzels. Yeah. The poor guy is so brittle looking. It looks like a breeze could break him in half. It looks like a speck of dust could just obliterate him. Yeah. It looks like a Sarah McLaughlin should be singing over his (laughs) documentary. Like, for a dollar a day, you could give this man more pounds of weight. Yeah, you can give him his daily piece of broccoli. Uh, why isn't he consuming uh, boost and like high calorie shakes of things with nutrients? He seems like the kind of guy who just like thinks that he's almost a martyr for being unhealthy. Like, yeah. Like he constantly was facing adverse medical challenges, but not taking them in stride, taking them almost like he just didn't care what the outcome was. Yeah. It wasn't like, 
I know I'm sick. I should go to the doctor to make it better. He's like, I know I'm sick. What does it matter? Everyone gets sick sometimes. Mm-hmm. Or like, it's like trying to be inspirational. The movie felt like it was created by someone who saw him, thought he was inspirational, and he was like, I am inspirational. Let's make a movie about it. And then they did. And it just felt like it was manufactured to elicit emotion. But because it felt like that, and to me was very transparent about it, it elicited nothing but cringe. You're saying that the documentary felt like Emmy's commercial for himself? Yeah. It felt like he was in on the message. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a very, there was a strong sense that the events of the documentary were staged because the story beats of the film like too rigidly abided by the traditional beats of a fictional disabled story. Yeah. Like every fucking road trip movie that we've watched lately, it had the exact same beats. What are the beats? Basically, he admits that he's in love with his attendant. He decides he's going to tell her. She doesn't reciprocate. He says, I'm going to America to find a doctor that told me I would only live to be six years old. Uh Everyone tells him it's a bad idea, but he decides it doesn't matter what everyone else thinks. It's all up to him now. He goes to the States, rents an RV with a film crew. By the way, after the attendant doesn't reciprocate, he asks her to leave. Yeah. Actually, he doesn't even ask her to leave. He asks someone to tell her to leave. Yeah, and then there's a pastiche of cuts of her packing her bags and calling a cab and looking up longingly at Emmy's apartment building. I wish I could make this better. I wish, I wish, but it's not the love I thought it was going to be. Yeah. I love Emmy. Yeah, actually, there's there's a really uncomfortable scene where um, they have Emmy's love in frame. You know, I love Emmy, okay, but it's... uh... It's not the love, like you say, you know, to lovers or this. Okay, I love him very much, like a friend and everything, you know. We're very good. We understand very good each other. But love, in the real meaning of the word, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's past two years. I'm with him for two years, you know. I don't know in the future if it can happen. If it didn't happen until now, I don't know. First of all, he's right beside her while she's saying all this. Yeah, and the, and the scene doesn't let you know. Like, it only pans over to Emmy sitting beside her at the end of her saying very clearly that she has no romantic interest in him. Yeah. Um, and I believe her. Well, okay, I want to defend him for a second. Just yeah. a second. Because yeah. there is a montage before this of them hanging out. And they do seem very, very close. And sure, that's okay. They can be close and still just be friends. But there yeah. are also scenes like she's shotgunning uh, smoke into his mouth. Yeah. And okay, again, maybe friends, you know, they're just shotgunning and that's how they do it. Mouth to mouth. Okay, whatever. But then there is a scene where she kisses him on the mouth and it looks like there's no other reason besides I want to kiss you on the lips. It looks like a kind of playfulness. Yeah, but it's still like, it's enough to, at least I can see, 
from Emmy's point of view, being confused by them. Or being led led on to some degree. Yeah. And then for her to be like, I don't know, it's not like that. I just like kissing him on the mouth. But it's not the kind of love that, you know, you like to love someone. I just like to kiss him on the mouth. Yeah. I wonder if she infantilizes him and just sees him as like yeah. somebody she's babysitting. And so she shows him. This is what it's like to get a kiss from someone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But there does there does appear appear to be a warmth and a kind regard toward him. So it's not like it's not like there's a huge gulf in Emmy's understanding of the situation and hers. All right. Yeah. So it's a little confusing in defense of him, of course. But he definitely overreacts. He doesn't just say, "Okay, she doesn't like me the same way I do," but I don't want to lose this friendship. He's like. Okay, be gone with you. I'm going to America. And then all throughout the film, he continues in voiceover. Oh my God. To write her love letters. The worst part. Oh God. Yeah, I think I have a clip of that too. Uh, do we have to? Okay. By the way, he's getting his friend here to write the letter for him. I landed in LA, moved on to Arizona. I'm on my way to Texas to the hospital in San Antonio to see Dr. Cordova. But first I'm going to stop in Dallas to visit my brother Oscar. As you know, we have some issues. Go on, Ami. I write this sometimes to myself. That's you, uh, really. That's you. Oh, with me. As I open my eyes. As I open my eyes. I see. Yeah. The eyes are face also. The. And then he laughs. Beautiful. I open my eyes. I I I see. The image of you. The image of you. And everything I see. Is that your gag reflex? It feels so forced. Yeah, like, it really does. It's just, if that's actually how he writes, come on, dude. You can do better. And if, if you're just doing it for the movie, even worse. This girl said she doesn't feel the same way about you. On camera, for the world to see. On camera, in front of you, and yeah. you're just like, I still love you. Everywhere I go, I see your face. I look at the potatoes, and the eyes are your eyes. I look at Mr. Potato Head, and it's your eyes I see. Your lips. I, every time you breathe, it's the air I breathe. I look up at the moon, and I realize there's only one moon. Uh, I look at the nudie magazines, and behold, it is your titties. <laughs> your smell, your mask. Yes, I'm not really <laughs> impressed. No, of course not. I will say, I had I had a bit of reverse body dysmorphia almost. Like, oh, that's good, right? I don't know. Like, I saw him and I'm like, wait, is that what my legs look like? I think it is. Oh, my God. No, your legs look normal. 
You've never seen my legs. I have. I've seen them in pictures. There's a picture of you in shorts, like on CBC News. Really? Yeah, I've seen it. <laughs> I wouldn't, if I had your legs, I wouldn't even be self-conscious. I'm not self-conscious, but like, sometimes I'm like, I think that that's not how I look. But I also think I might just be lying to myself because I think that that is, I think we have very similar bodies. And I just, in my mind, I'm like able-bodied compared to him. (laughs) Relatively speaking? Yeah. Well, as we've established, you look like the handsome actor Edward Norton. Oh yeah, we've established that? Yeah, yeah. I've never compared you to anyone else. Uh So, and I agree with you, you are infinitely more handsome than Amy. I don't know if we should be body shaming the guy, though. I'm not body shaming him. It was a a very interesting mental gymnastics thing I was doing where I was looking at him, comparing myself to what I imagine myself looking like, then seeing him and then realizing there's probably a pretty disparate gap between what I think I look like and what I actually look like. Like a lot of this movie, I was wondering what I would say about myself if I could watch a movie like this about myself and not know it was me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess. Like if I could get my ego out of it, what would I say to me as me, not knowing I was talking to myself? Anyway, this is... <laughs> what are you, you're incepting me right now, Tony. I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> the other thing that I hated about this movie was the overarching premise that he's going to talk to his doctor who gave him an unfavorable diagnosis. Yeah, like, 34 years ago. Yeah, what are you doing? What is the point of this? To me, this is a worse premise than that sex movie we watched where they all go across country to get laid. Oh, yeah. This this documentary makes um, uh, Come As You Are seem like a fucking Oscar-winning film. You know, in the 80s or 70s when the Oscars kind of had significance. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I wanted to make one more joke about Amy. He looks like he weighs less than a photograph of himself. I'm pretty sure his shadow is stronger than he is. (laughs) Sorry, that's so mean. The poor guy died. Oh, did he? When he was 41, though, seven years after this. Oh, gosh. 41's, like, pretty decent, considering that is... it looked like he was going to die halfway through this movie. <laughs> yeah, really? Like, I, I swear, they were feeding him soup lying down, and I was like, you're going to choke to death, dude. Sit up. It was like one-seventh of a spoonful of broth. There wasn't even any content to the soup. Yeah, that's why he's 39 pounds. I actually don't think he had SMA. I think it was just an eating disorder. (laughs) He looks like Voldemort, I'm telling you. When I told you I looked like the body of Voldemort at the end when his turban comes in. Anyway, I'm You look like Edward Norton and he looks like Calista Flockhart. Like dehydrated Calista Flockhart. I don't know who Calista Flockhart is. She's like Allie McBeal. The the woman whose side profile is thinner than a sheet of paper. I still don't know who you're talking about. I'm doing a lot of shaming today. That poor woman probably has... We should get your dad on here to be like, well, that's because you only eat broth. 
Yeah. <laughs> My dad should fucking diagnose all the problems of wheelies. <laughs> Maybe if you ate a few bread scoops every once in a while. <laughs> Throw a twist in your soup. <laughs> it's your fault, Mr. Wheelie. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have a lot of empathy for this guy. Yeah, I can tell. Again, maybe <laughs> Russia, it's because it's a mirror that I'm not ready to look into. No, you're way cooler. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just i I felt really disconnected from him, and i I don't. I was really trying the whole time to see to introspect and to reflect on how much of it is my own insecurities that I'm not ready to face. Mm -hmm. But I really just don't think I like this guy. I don't think you're, I don't think he's speaking to your insecurities because I felt really uncomfortable throughout the film as well. And I think probably in a similar way. I also think, what is the point of villainizing the doctor? Yeah. It feels like something a lazy screenwriter would come up with. Yeah. Like he's just doing his, imagine if you get up, and it's Saturday morning, and you turn on the weather network, and the weatherman's like, looks like it's supposed to rain today, and you don't go out, and then it's a nice day, and you get mad at a doctor that you didn't go out? Yeah, 34 years later, you track him down and tell him... November 4th, <laughs> it was sunny outside. Yeah. I could have gone outside. And then the doctor just sat there and he was like, just taking it. The man goes yeah. on like a three minute spiel about how you shouldn't diagnose people. Um, that's his job. Yep. He's like, you don't tell people that they shouldn't, they might not live because you might exceed their And he's like, just sitting there taking it. And then eventually just goes, um, you're very illuminating that you've surpassed this expectation. Can I go now? They tracked him down in Florida. I felt so bad for the doctor. It was very much, it felt like a gotcha moment. Like yeah. he, he, the doctor himself looks so befuddled and defenseless. And he's just sort of, while Emmy's speaking and talking about how the longevity of his life is so incredibly life-affirming in general for everyone in the audience, and how dare the doctor say that he was not going to live very long? The the doctor himself is like basically looking down the middle distance, not quite at the camera, yeah. but not quite at Amy, as though he might be like. It almost looked like he wasn't lucid because he didn't know where to look. Exactly. Have you ever seen Bowling for Columbine? No, I refuse. Really? You don't like bowling? <laughs> <laughs> You don't like bowling. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be able to handle it. All those strikes. At the end of the movie, Michael Moore... By the way, I really like Michael Moore and his movies. By the way, I like bowling. Yeah, <laughs> I like bowling. Well, it's it's an accessible sport. It is, if you have a tube... Or a ramp. Yeah, a ramp, yeah. My parents he, used to bring one of those concrete foundation tubes that you put in the ground and then fill with concrete to build a foundation off of. And they'd bring one of those to the bowling alley. 
and then I just roll the bowling ball through the tube. And would you tell them to push on the ball or would you do it yourself? I used to be able to hold the weight of the ball to stop it from rolling. And then I just let go and it would roll on its own. Okay, okay. That sounds sort of like almost maybe fun. I had a great time. <laughs> I, I got to like, I'd be like, okay, push it a little bit to the left. Okay. Um. Well, what the hell was I saying? Oh, yeah. In Bowling for Columbine, there's this, I got, spoiler alert, at the end of the film, Michael Moore basically ties everything to like all the high profile instances of public violence uh, in the late 1990s in the States, he ties it to the NRA. And so he has this very gotcha meeting with the actor Charlton Heston, who is the celebrity spokesperson for that organization. Um, And a lot of people think that this interview was below the belt because uh, Heston himself at the time was of dubious lucidity um and so but because you know michael moore made his name with the documentary roger and me where he confronts i think it's the ceo of the ford motor company about uh outsourcing of jobs in flint michigan or something his hometown i haven't seen that one it's just my memory of the synopsis which might be wrong don't at me michael our producer uh so yeah i'm just saying that this gotcha moment in Amy's movie felt like Bowling for Columbine. It felt below the belt. Not to mention that I don't know how you could derive some kind of self-actualization by humiliating your mother's birth doctor. Well, that's what I mean. Like, what is the point of this? Even if the doctor was fully lucid, appeared fully lucid, what what are you trying to gain? I don't even think Amy knew because during his speech and we have it but i don't even want to play it it's pretty rambly it's really annoying go watch the movie if you must it it almost seems like he didn't even prepare it beforehand like he actually he didn't for sure he didn't because in the in the speech he was trying to figure out he was almost studying the premise for why he was giving the speech. Yeah. And he didn't even convince anyone what he was doing. Yeah. He's like, I'm not blaming you. I just want people to know that even, okay, do you have to talk to the doctor to tell them? Yeah. Yeah, the doctor took it like a champ, but I felt terrible for him. It wasn't his fault. Like, a doctor's duty in that moment is to say, okay, this is the diagnosis. Unfortunately, we don't have any medicine. He's probably going to live to about six based on what we know. Prepare yourself for that reality. What's the doctor supposed to do? He's going to live to be 34, um, I'm guessing. And then he's going to come find me in Florida. You're supposed to give extremely conservative estimates. Yeah, you don't want to, you want to prepare them for the reality because then you go on living your life being like, oh, 28 years extra, that's pretty chill. Yeah. But on the flip side, if I was to play devil's advocate, do you think that there's any negative implication to a doctor giving a diagnosis like this? Like maybe the mom hears that diagnosis and goes, okay, I need to tighten up the leash on this kid, make sure I'm watching over him like a hawk, and don't let him go too far from home. And as a result, maybe he doesn't get to live a full life. Well, as you said on the podcast previously, your 
diagnosis or prognosis or whatever led your mother to think that you only had so much time left on this earth. And so she basically uh, malnourished you for a number of years, thinking there was no point in (laughs) maintaining your health, Yeah, which is pretty scary. It was like, oh, I'll just eat great cheese and be happy. Yeah. And then you had barbaric circumstances around all that nonsense. So that is the thing, right? Like, as a doctor, how do you find that balance of here's an objective diagnosis based on modern science and what we know, but also don't limit your child's potential based on these facts? Well, you just have to qualify it properly. Yeah, I guess. But that is a tough job. And I don't think it's fair for Amy to hold his feet to the fire. I honestly think that him and his documentary producers thought it would make a great movie moment. Yeah. Because think of the number of times in these movies that we've watched in which there is a confrontation of a doctor or like a a neglective. Is that a word? Neglective? I don't know, but it is now. I know what you're saying. Like a neglecting parent or guardian. There's always these moments where wheelie characters in lesser written wheelie films have this nice Hollywood confrontation with somebody who's participated in their cripple oppression. And uh, I think that's what this documentary was going for because there are many, many elements of this movie that seem kind of overly convenient. Like there's a moment in the film where Amy, I think stops at the grand Canyon or some I was just going to get to that, yeah. Yeah, it's like some dry desert region. Uh And at some point while they're walking, like Amy's in a a fairly lightweight mobile chair and they're walking and he has trouble breathing and they have to call paramedics. And then very weirdly, the film cuts to uh, him going to a church and then being... Like he consults with a priest, and there's some a really cheesy exchange between them. How do you feel? Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. Well, I hope and pray that everything goes well with you. Yes. Your faith is the one that's gonna save you. Yes. So you have to be yourself, okay? Yes. Always. Yeah. You never know what might happen. We'll never know. But if you have faith, that's what God will want from you. Okay? I'm glad that we were able to help you. Okay? Bueno. Take care. Good night. How did you help him? But you didn't do anything. You let him down on a wooden pew? Yeah, they did. Like a little bundle of joy at the front of the church. And this pastor like bends down and whispers these sweet nothings to him about (laughs) the importance of faith. And it feels very staged and like no part, no part of the film previously speaks to uh, Emmy's religion or his, or his value system spiritually. But there is a common thread of people praying for him, which obviously we've talked about being a realistic experience for people with disabilities in situations like this. Yeah. But they all seem to come out of, oh, look, there's a camera. This seems like the thing I should do. Yeah, and it sort of seems like they were briefed by the crew like 15 minutes before shooting, and they're like, 
just say something general about the importance of faith and yeah. blah, 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 and make sure you like kneel down into his ear. And we'll also position him like the baby Jesus. There's a moment at the end of the movie too, where Amy gets to go on a bike ride on a Harley Davidson because he loves Harley Davidson's for some reason. Yeah. And has a tattoo of Harley Davidson on his arm. And eventually they had never realized until this point that they could just put him in a sidecar of a, of a bike and take him down the highway. And yeah. then as they're preparing him, the biker puts his hands to Emmy's forehead. I don't think we have a clip, but basically he's like, by the power vested in me by Harley Davidson, I will make you rock again or whatever. And then they <laughs> yeah. drive away into the sunset. By the way, the movie never regards these people as oafish, like the religious people, you know, praising Emmy for superficial reasons. Like it's all sort of in stride with what the movie is going after. And the movie agrees with that sentiment. I think the whole scene, like at the Grand Canyon, like before paramedics arrive, is meant to convey just how difficult it is for Amy to be on a road trip in general. Like yeah. he has such frailty and yet he still desires to persist. And there's there's also a subplot about him meeting up with a brother who uh, started a family in the West and was uh, disenfranchised from his home in Israel because he had a, a disagreement with how his mother spent too much attention on Amy uh, as a result of his disability. And that does resonate with us. That is a common theme with other movies that we watch. I'm thinking of Wonder in particular. Um, but that again feels oddly staged because when the brothers meet, it's immediately amicable. Like the guy is suddenly, his brother is suddenly available to continue the rest of the road trip with them. When the mom shows up and they're all happily ever after, they just act like they haven't been estranged for five years. Or I could be many decades. It seemed, They seem to imply that it's many decades. Yeah. And so there's all these little poignant moments that occur throughout the road trip that don't really feel authentic to me. Also, the whole thing about the unrequited love at the beginning. Okay, wait. So I want to touch on those two points. So the unrequited love plus manufactured story beats leads us to this one clip we have where basically, I think they're still at the Grand Canyon and Amy is like a talking head. And it's the only talking head moment really in this part of the film. So it yeah. feels really forced again. And yeah. they say, when did you realize you are completely different? Keep in mind, he's 34 years old, 39 pounds. So almost as old as he is heavy. No shit. Good point, Tony. When was the first time you realized you're different, completely different? When uh, Estina walked out the door in our house, I left. That's when I realized. That's what I really like. 
and different. Other different. So you're trying to tell me that you realize you were different than everyone else at the moment in the movie that we saw after the camera was rolling when you asked your attendant to leave because she didn't love you the way you wanted her to. Yeah, it's totally unreasonable. Get out of here. Yeah, like one rejection from a woman makes you realize that you're different. Yeah. Not coping with an extremely like challenging disability for your It wasn't when you dropped to forty pounds. You yeah. were like, Oh, maybe this isn't normal. <laughs> it's it's kind of goofy. By the way, that woman is only 21 years old and he's 34. Yeah. It, it, it's annoying to me that he seems like the child in the relationship. And also that we're supposed to be rooting for them to get together. Yeah, because it's only normal that disabled people infantilize themselves. Right. My last big gripe with this movie was just it ends. It just randomly ends. They get into a bike, they sail off into the sunset, and then the movie's over. There's no going back home, maybe seeing the girl again, maybe realizing that, I don't know, any realization would have been cool. Besides, oh, I'm disabled, I just found out. I thought the funeral at the end was kind of funny. Like when they forget to put a visor on the little bike pod and he gets hit by a common housefly while driving down the road and dies. (laughs) (laughs) That was funny. The fly weighs more than he does. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty cool way to go. I thought he was going to die for sure. Like I thought that this movie was basically set up so that he would die and the girl would speak to this funeral like, I never loved him the way I wanted to and the way, the way he wanted me to, but he taught me how to love or some bullshit. But he didn't die in the movie. It just kind of ends. Yeah, it's pretty pretty bad. Like I, I will say that he, he, Amy, is an animator and created a bunch of, created an animation of some birds getting it on or like like a love story about birds. He creates this this like series of little animated shorts that are supposed to parallel the non-relationship that he has with his attendant. Yeah. And so throughout the film, there are repeated instances of the boy bird, who's supposed to be him, attempts to gain the attention of his beautiful Romanian 21-year-old. Bird. And she keeps she keeps like taking his worm and then rejecting him. So, like, you know, using him and then disposing of him. Yeah. But you know what they say, the able-bodied bird gets the worm. (laughs) Very good, very good. Uh, Well, actually, yeah, the bird in his animation is able-bodied, but that's neither here nor there. At the end of the movie, like, after his fucking little uh, cheesy joyride, and before he gets hit by the housefly, he um, has this short of him uh, rejecting his little Romanian girl. So it's like, not only does he... Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, not only does he feel cool, but he's coped with his rejection uh, by rejecting an animated bird. You can't reject me, I reject you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But the animation was pretty cool. (laughs) Props to him for, for doing this animation. It does seem like he's pretty talented. Yeah. 
for it. Like, I mean, I'm sure it was a lot harder to uh, single-handedly create animated shorts in 2005 with a, like a single working uh, index finger. finger. Yeah. The whole like unrequited love bullshit seems to be just to show that Amy has the capacity to love. Well, he is 39 pounds of love. <laughs> yeah, gross. Like the whole point seems to be to assert that wheelies can love at all or that they they can have that particular yearning which means that they are human or something and that's just incredibly shallow like this movie came out in 2005 granted so so it's one of the first of its kind i suppose i wasn't it up for an oscar at the time yeah it was according to roger ebert's review and he laments that it actually gets nominated over grizzly man which i would agree with right the thing about the unrecorded love story is also that it feels like they're just trying to, you know, they've heard people say disabled people deserve love and they're trying to like prove it with this. But the love story that they're trying to prove it with never was convincing to me. No. Like I was never like, yeah, man, if you were able bodied, you would have got the girl. It just didn't feel like they were on the same page. It didn't really feel like the disability was that much of a factor, honestly. And he never gets a talking to about moving on. No, she just gets kicked out. Yeah, he just kicks her out. The thing is, he doesn't kick her out. That part really annoyed me. He says, okay, ask her to leave then. Like, he never does it. To who? To, like, like, the the cameraman or director or something the omnipotent uh, documentarian the housefly that eventually kills him <laughs> yeah yeah as you can tell i love this movie there's such a funny scene early on in the film where amy gathers with his family and like breaks the news to them that he wants to drive across the united states oh yeah and they're like no 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 amy you're going to die you can't do it. I will not let you do it. You cannot. You must not go. And he's like, I will go. And I will like, not you, let you to go. But you must go. I will not let you, Amy. There's no way you're going to go. I will not let you go. I want to talk to my doctor. Do you not understand? And it's like, this goes right, on. What for, do you want to say to the doctor? I want to say I'm still alive. He knows. He doesn't know. He doesn't matter. Who cares? <laughs> Amy, you stay here. You eat some soup. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you eat your broth. You only have one mouthful of broth all week. It, it has You're less. You're down cal- to thirty-eight pounds, Amy. It has less calories than water. Please, Amy. Now he's French. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we, we, Amy, the soup and the broth. Mon ami, you cannot go. <laughs> I would give this movie thirty-nine out of a hundred. Pounds. Pounds. <laughs> what would your documentary be called? 110 pounds of Diuk. Can you imagine a 110 pound dick? Oh my god. That would be terrifying. <laughs> how, how heavy do you think an elephant dick is? <laughs> I was gonna say if you Probably could get like that 20 pounds. Yeah, if you could get that hard, no wonder you can't move your neck. <laughs> Every time I get a boner, my head falls off the head. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. Uh, I don't know what mine would be called. I'm about 110 pounds. I don't know of what, though. I don't know. Something something 
like 110 pounds or something you're deeply passionate about? I don't know, man. I don't think this documentary, I don't feel connected enough to this documentary to try to recreate it, which is a good thing because I don't think I was emotionally prepared for what it might have done to me if it was a good documentary. I think it would have been way more insightful and interesting to have a documentary crew with you the night you went out to the hockey game. And then like, it's, it's, it's just like what it's 110 called. 110 pounds of misfortune. 110 pounds of rotary phone. <laughs> there you go. And it's all about your fight with the attendant care organization, not to use lackluster technology as an excuse to avoid their job. It just ends in them receiving a bullet shipment of elastic bands. <laughs> yeah. Well, have we covered everything for this movie? I think we have. Can we do a quick wheel breaker? Sure. Wheel breakers. Jamie, I'm going to make you fully able-bodied. Okay. But as your able-bodied self, even though you can walk around as as you wish all the time, uh-huh. you must demand to be carried everywhere. Like, Emmy gets carried everywhere. Uh, that That's a part of the film that actually annoyed me. It was so annoying. They were, like, carrying him up and down, and then at one point they'd have to, like, lie him down on a rock, and people would be, like, rubbing his nipples to make him feel better. Yeah. It's and then- like, maybe he's just not cut out for this. Maybe he didn't have enough broth today. Yeah. By the way, it's no wonder he was dehydrated because they make a point of showing how much alcohol Amy drinks because he's cool. And he definitely oh, yeah. drinks drinks more scotch than he does like water broth. <laughs> Which is like, that's your problem, dumbass. Yeah. 39 pounds of liquor. <laughs> 39 pounds of liver fat. <laughs> So yeah, you're fully able-bodied. Okay. But everywhere you go, you must be carried. By who? Well, that's up to you to figure out. <laughs> that's the question I was going to ask. Who do you get to carry you? What if I find somebody really cool that would carry me? But would you be really cool for having them carry you all the time? <laughs> I mean, if I got Dwayne the Rock Johnson to carry me everywhere, I think I'd be pretty fucking cool. You wouldn't get Dwayne Johnson. I don't know. There's could, no way. I think if I tweet at him enough, I could. Please. You think that guy has time to carry you around? Yeah, I do. Yeah. You think he's going to do it? Yep. I'm pretty cool. So he should. I mean, he's also pretty cool. He is very cool. He would probably do it. But would you do it? Would you let him carry you around? If it was The Rock, I would. You'd just be like, yo, pick me up. I want to go to the store. Yep. Pick me up, I need some bananas. Yep. Pick me up and put me on the couch. I want to play Rocket League. Totally. I love Rocket League. And you think you would just be like, that's good. I'll put my career on pause for you. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, because they'll we'll get a documentary crew and they'll film the rock. What would your documentary be called? God. First of all, how many pounds? It would be it would be 155 pounds of film. <laughs> <laughs> okay i would watch it all 155 pounds of it i don't know how long do you think that would take i have no idea i don't know how long how much a film real weighs how heavy is the titanic film i don't know our producer like in a couple of days is going to be like interesting fact a film reel weighs 
15 pounds. That's an inside baseball joke. He'll appreciate it. What were we, what were we saying? Oh yeah, you're gonna. I'm gonna get carried around. Like I mean, I could do it. I mean, okay. Let's say it's not the Rock. Let's say yeah. it has to be only people in my life that do it. Then I would say no because I couldn't expect them to carry me around. But you could expect the Rock to do it. Yeah, because the Rock is cool and he can lift things. That's his whole life. Yeah, but the thing is, will he? He can. But do you actually think he's going to be like, all right, I've done enough Jumanji, time to carry Jamie around? Oh, for sure he would, yeah. We'd be famous together. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And your contribution to the fame is I'm the guy who gets carried. Yeah, and we would go to WWE events and he would like use me as a weapon, like throw me at Triple H or whatever (laughs) as a decoy and then punch him in the... Gonads? I don't know. His new wrestling move would be like the people's cripple or something. <laughs> yeah. Just throw you at people. Yeah, no, he he like throws my elbow at people. <laughs> <laughs> Just grab you by the ankles and spin you around a few times. Sure. Like that Bowser, how you get rid of Bowser, the first star of Super Mario. Exactly. I have... <laughs> I have a formidable cranium. Cool brag. <laughs> My friends always joke about how, like, even the biggest hats don't fit me. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. I think I have a small head. Cool brag. I can't tell with the beanie. All right, do you have a wheel breaker? Okay, so, oh no, I don't know if that's a good one. I'll try it. Okay, well, so you get to be 100% able bodied, but you have to write a monthly love letter anonymously to an unrequited crush from high school anonymously well i guess you'll figure out who you are eventually well see this isn't a good one let me think again that wouldn't bother me if it was anonymous just some random person gets a love letter i just carry on living my life but you have to write yeah okay that would yeah that's not a good wheel breaker if you said i had to sign it then I'd, I'd be a bit embarrassed because then all the time, especially when she like writes me back and she's like, no, thanks. <laughs> yeah. And then I just send her another one. Every time I close my eyes, I see your face. <laughs> I see your eyes everywhere. I was on the bus today and I handed my card to the bus driver and I thought it was you. <laughs> Then I sat down on the bus next to a woman. I thought it was you. I got off the bus. I went to the grocery store. I picked up my items and I went to the cashier. She asked me cash or credit. And I thought it was you. I would just start sending like ridiculous love letters. How often would I have to send them? Once a month. I think I'd have some fun with it. Although, you think I'd... What happens if I get... Like a restraining order from this person. That's the thing. That's what I'm worried about is that it borders on creepy. So I have to, I have to be like tactful about it. Yeah, you have to make it like funny and entertaining almost. I have to make her like reject me, but like don't stop sending the letters. Yeah, like not feel threatened. Like I don't want this, but like send me another one. <laughs> yeah, you would get really good at like both rejection and love letter writing. <laughs> Two things I've always wanted to be better at. For sure. uh, yeah, I'll take the deal. You'll take the deal? Yeah. 
So you gonna sign your name or what? I actually know who I'd have to send it to too. Oh wow! Yeah, lucky girl <laughs> <laughs> or guy. <laughs> um, yeah, it, I'd be really good at love letters for sure. I'd have to sign everyone. Like, please don't ask me to stop sending these because <laughs> I'll be in a wheelchair if you do. Yeah, and I can't give you additional context. <laughs> Bye. Just know I'll have spinal muscular atrophy if you do. <laughs> you just guilt her into not being afraid or creeped out by you? She's like, please stop sending these to me. I'll like, draw a picture of what it would look like if I couldn't. <laughs> With like an X through it or a sad face? Just <laughs> under the documentary we just watched. <laughs> Oh, God. Is that in the podcast episode with the wheel breakers? The last episode? Because you know I'm able-bodied we're done this podcast. Yeah, we couldn't record it anymore. No, I'd be a phony. I would just be mad at you the whole time. <laughs> I would be the ultimate cripple threat. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, yeah, so what? It, what's it like? <laughs> oh, that's nice. My biggest complaints are, like, the price of stamps. <laughs> Or just the the usual things that able-bodied people complain about. Home maintenance is so much work. <laughs> I had to weed my garden on the weekend. <laughs> I hate shoveling snow. What do I do for date night? I feel like I cook the same meals every week. <laughs> the price of hydro keeps going up. <laughs> it's so hard to find another job in real tail. Do you know how hard it is to clean a hot tub? (laughs) I feel like I'm only gaining a few pounds of muscle a week. (laughs) I have to re-shingle my roof next week. I forgot to change the snow tires on my BMW. I have too many kids. (laughs) (sighs) Able-bodied people. What a bunch of bastards. This one's for you. This episode is dedicated to all the able-bodied people. (laughs) I wonder if able-bodied people feel what you are saying about complaining to me, about complaining to you. Or they're like, I can't complain about my life to Jamie. Yeah, I don't know. Probably. They're like, oh, it would be insensitive to talk about how hard it is to take the stairs to work. Oh, yeah. I mean, I tease my coworkers for that type of shit all the time. Yeah. Like when they tell me that they worked out too hard at the gym and it's really hard to move today. Yeah. Oh, it's hard to move, is it? Yeah, I always do that for a joke, like for them. It always... But I bet you there is part of them, or at least some people that think that the same way you thought that about me, like, I shouldn't complain about this to this person. Yeah. Well, but it's also like I complain about my soreness a lot to you already so it's like maybe you don't want to hear it anymore (laughs) that's all no that's not all but nice safe (laughs) should we end it yeah we should i really we really guys if you're listening we really need a good way to end this thing no we just say bye fuck it we're out of time we're leaving now okay bye no we're leaving we have lives we gotta get back to our lives bye bye everyone (laughs) okay bye